Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to a new episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. This is a special recording in a couple of different ways. First and foremost, it's the inaugural recording of uh, my new place. So that being said, I noticed that I'm getting a little bit of a distant drone from traffic, which is weirder considering I'm now living much higher than I was before. And I'm also hearing a little bit of bit of pitapana. For those in Sydney, you're probably seeing that we're being... Uh, subjected to a deluge, albeit a sporadic deluge for today in the coming days. So, swords in advance, if you guys can hear that in the background, I guess I'm going to say that just lends to its authenticity of the record. Uh, but this is also an unprecedented uh, first for the program in that it's an international guest speaking to me today. They are speaking to me from, I think it was Los Angeles, definitely good old the US of A. It is Cassandra Austin. Cassandra Austin, as her uh, bio says there, is a lovesick, uh, homesick, sorry, I shouldn't say lovesick, homesick uh, Australian that's not so much stranded, but there with her family in America. But today, Cassandra is going to be talking to me about her latest novel, historical fiction novel, Like Mother. Uh, this is not Sandra, Cassandra's first time to the rodeo. She has written two other novels, as well as being a criminologist and a documentary filmmaker as well. So she's done a lot of different things. But yeah, today she's going to be talking to me about Like Mother. And even though Cassandra is currently based in the US, this is actually a historical fiction novel that is set within uh, 1960s Australia, Benelong, uh, of all places. I can't wait to ask her about uh, the setting. But it's essentially about a, a woman, a young mother, who is overworked, overtired, uh, overstressed, as is kind of pretty standard for someone that's been sort of left to their own devices with a newborn, to awaken one day, albeit to turn around and find that her newborn is missing. So I want you to give a huge round of applause to Cassandra Austin to talk to me about Like Mother, particularly because she's talking to me from across the pond. I think that term applies to those that are in Australia talking to those in America, but if not, in any event, I want you all to give a big digital round of applause to Cassandra Austin talking to me about her third novel today, Like Mother. Cassandra Austin, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way program all the way across in the States. How are you? Oh, I'm terrific. Thanks, Sam. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So happy to have you here. I was just, I was a little bit stressed. I was like, oh God, like, is there going to be something that's that's going to make it not work? I mean, it's seemingly simple, but Zoom, you know, is a lot better than that godforsaken Teams. But still, there's always there's always room for for failure. Anyway, look, let's start off with an oldie but a goodie one. I always like to ask is where did the idea for like mother originate from? You know, I wish I had some fantastically dramatic story for this, but it was a it was a sad moment on the school playground. My youngest child had just run away into the classroom for her first day of school. And I thought I've done this before. My oldest child had already been to school and I know how to drop them off and they'll be fine. And that is what happened, except that I suddenly realized that I wasn't going home to a young child anymore, that they were now in someone else's hands for six or seven hours a day. And I had to completely refigure my days and how to be a mum too. I wasn't this mum hem with little chicks, you know, running under my wings anymore. And I had a moment of deep grieving and deep sadness. Somehow I hadn't prepared for it. And then, of course, as a novelist, my brain kicks in and I start thinking, oh, what, 
what if I couldn't let go? What if, what if, you know, what, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a helicopter parent and a controlling mother? And why would that happen to you? So that's sort of what started the ball rolling. And then, you know, I did draw on events from my own life when you're a new time, you know, you've just become a mum, first time mum, you know, certain days can feel pretty lonely. You can feel like you're making mistakes. You're very, very tired all the time. So I think those experiences in combination with that little spark of thought, that's what sort of kicked the ball rolling. It's interesting you mentioned that the tiredness thing and you, you really captured that well, this kind of like just a perpetual <laughs> state of ingrained exhaustion. I remember my mum telling me a story. So she had she had me and my sister were about a, a year, year apart. I'm the older. And my mum said that she used to fall asleep while standing up with hands in um, – Dishes, like as in like at right. the sink, standing up right. like a horse. That's yes. that's how exhausted. That's incredible. I think it is, well, particularly you're saying you're only about a year apart. Yeah. My two, you know, my two, a little bit more than that, but not that much more. So I had two kids in under the age of two in nappies and I was solo parenting for quite a while at one stage there. And, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's tiring. That's really hard. Hats wow. off to my mum who did four of us, you know. Within that sort of like that sort of close knit sort of age yeah, bracket, pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so drawing from experiences as well as your own your own thoughts and questions, but I'm I'm interested about the setting itself because did, did, was it always historically set within the the 60s? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the 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 first and truthful answer to that is I said it in the 60s initially because mobile phones and the internet just have instant solutions to any problem it doesn't mean they're the right solutions but if you can type on at 2 a.m should i take my baby to a hospital with the temperature of such and such then you know it's that that's the end of the drama in a novel so if i said it in the past when you don't have that sort of access you are much more isolated so that's the first reason i said it in the past um And the second reason is that I really wanted some sort of easing the reader into this situation. It's a pretty dramatic situation. By the first chapter, the baby's missing. Mm. And for a lot of readers, I know that reading that on the back of the book is kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. But I think if you set something in the past, it gives you just that little bit of distance to go, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe I could, Maybe I could do that because the past is a whole different place, right? They do things differently there. So that's that's sort of the other reason that I said it in the past. And then, of course, it just becomes so much fun. And mm. the 60s, what people did, the way they looked and dressed and, and thought about things, it's different and it's fun. That was really fun. Yeah. Why Benelong? Is, is, is that some significance to you and, like, your, your own upbringing or...? Um, well, Benelong, I, I found out belatedly, is an actual town in Australia. I thought that I'd made the name up. Oh, really? <laughs> Get out of town? I, no, no, I thought that was like no. a, a, no. a, a deliberate kind of... No, no right, okay. I, I'm sitting over here in Los Angeles, you know, making the name up. Um, fortunately, I did spell it differently. I think the real Benelong is double N and I yeah, just double N. With, yeah. yeah, with a single N. But I only, I only found that out belatedly. I sort of based both Calhuna, which is, of course, Kahuna and, 
and Benelong, which is based on Bendigo, both of them have these separate, because that's where I was from the age of 10 to 18 in Bendigo. So I sort of thought I was making up these names, you know, very cleverly and then found out <laughs> that I wasn't making anything up. But, you know, that happens too, doesn't it? Well, it's like dormant, yeah, in your subconscious. Like it's something that yeah. from the from your youth that's been buried for however long and yeah, then it just gets unearthed and you don't even notice it. Yeah. How did you go about bringing the 60s to life there? Because I think that what I kind of liked and I thought you did very well, it was never beating you over the head as the reader. It was all about the subtleties, i.e. Um, Gladys going to the going to the servo, looking at chocolates, um, the kind of chocolates that are on sale, uh, <laughs> the walker that was mentioned at the end of the book, um, world history, you know, the moon landing, all, all that sort of stuff kind of yeah. still fresh in the minds of uh, everyone. Yeah. Did, yeah. Did, did you did you kind of like go down a rabbit hole with the with the research or did you just kind of keep it nice and trim? How did you go about that? Well, in the first instance, you do go down the rabbit hole yeah. and then what you have to do as a writer is make sure that you're just letting the reader have the tip of the iceberg while you've got the entire iceberg at your command underneath in terms of the amount of information. But I'm not writing a novel to show off that I've done research. I'm definitely using it to try and bring out elements of character. But, yes, it is great fun when you start doing that research and you're finding all these tidbits and trying to think about how to use it and what's important and what's not important. And you can trip yourself up in that sort of way. But I think I start or I like to start with ads at the time. You know, how were advertisers trying to get you to buy pyjamas or a can of tomatoes or, you know, the hill's hoist? You know, I've got lots and lots of visual material that I pulled from that sort of era so that I could look at it and look at what what I found was really interesting was the formality of the period so a lot of the ads had people you know really well dressed with their hats and ties and suits and pearls while they're advertising nail polish or cars or and we just we've lost that formality we don't do that anymore but that was still very much a feature of the 60s so it meant that I was thinking all the time, oh, yeah, you know, people dressed up when they went out, when they went down to the shops, when they were, you know, which doesn't mean in a small country town they were always doing that. They might have been doing the opposite. They had curlers in their hair underneath a scarf, which we also wouldn't do today. So I was trying to negotiate, you know, the realities that I could see in advertisements, which are not completely true, with, you know, a, a sort of real sense of what, how people sort of managed those same things yeah I think that you tied in pretty well because I liked um Stephen kind of considered himself this forward-thinking entrepreneur with these uh, these flash new kind of refrigerators and all of that you know that wasn't necessarily integral to the rest of the plot but it was just kind of like this lovingly sort of realized part of it which certainly I got a kick out of um let's talk about the town because like Ben along I mean you know it's 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 mentioned and obviously that's where it's set but I think it's it's kind of somewhat generic so it could be kind of anywhere albeit just within a small Australian town in the 60s but with with it and this is kind of like where there's two distinct camps I found with with the with like mother is that there's the township itself and then there's Louise's family Gladys Larry Stephen everyone like that uh both of them are connected to each other by virtue of one being inside the other which is the family living within the township. But they kind of don't want anything really all that much to do with each other except the bare necessities and what that kind of caused, particularly after 
don't want to get into it too much, but the events of Elizabeth uh, as, a, as a child, that sort of kind of served to indelibly stain the relationship or the township's attitude towards, um, well, obviously primarily Louise, but also Gladys as well. And I wonder if that was a thing that you wanted to kind of explore, how the indelible staining from a trauma or for a tragedy can forever kind of mar or define the way a town is treats one of its denizens from there on after. Is that something you wanted to explore? Was I kind of on the right track with that or...? I think definitely. I think that with any small community and whether that's a neighbourhood in a city or whether that's a small town itself, getting to know the characters and getting to know what's going on in their life does result in precisely that. And Mm. I think it then goes two ways. You've got the protection of a community that knows you and that knows your history and your trauma and can assist you with that by being silent or by being respectful with reminders and those sorts of things and can result in complete shunning in a sense if you can't knit away that wound in Mm. some way or another if it can't be honored or if it can't be spoken about if it's being kept secret and no one's allowed to talk about it but it's the thing that's known about mrs such and such then it's a great divider Mm. So I think, yes, you've got both of those elements and, you know, the the aunts in a sense in the book like Mother have come together in a sense, you know, around their family history, whereas Gladys has remained apart from them Mm. uh, because of that division, because of all the secrecy and the secret, you know, that she's ultimately keeping about it. So I think, yeah, you're right. I think you have both those sides of what goes on when you're you're very well known in a community. There's also kind of you explore the sort of incestuous nature of, of communities like that because particularly for all of sort of Stephen's subplot, I mean, it's kind of like started and propagated and com- completed by uh, people knowing people's business. So, yes. again, is that kind of harking back to this sort of thing where, again one of the pitfalls or the follies of of a small sort of township and what that can kind of impact on everyone knows everyone's business and everyone knows someone who will know someone so yeah it becomes it becomes look lies and secrets of course are the playground of anyone who's writing a novel because Mm. something's got to be repressed and something's got to be revealed in one way or another um so if you put that in the cauldron of a small town the tension gets so much greater because everyone knows part of the puzzle, but what part do they actually know? You know, Stephen's sitting at the table with his secretary when she starts to blackmail him and he's bewildered at how she could possibly have seen him and this woman together. And, of course, you know, the way that that's happened, which I won't, you know, um, I won't spoil you know, is it is only six degrees of separation, but it has nothing to do with that secretary and what she's seen. Mm. So, yes, th- those are the joys then of a novelist and the puppet strings that you're actually pulling. When your stage is so small and you're keeping everything so contained, you're just trying to rise tension. That's what I'm doing. So small towns, it is perfect for that. It's yeah. perfect for that. And, I mean, obviously what the this kind of touched on what we've, we've said, but... Small towns uh, will have these preconceived notions or they form these opinions of people within the town that will be obstinate, like they will be unshakable. They'll never change those. 
Um, but that kind of jumped over not only within the sort of broader sort of setting I found, but also within the more kind of narrowed uh, realm within sort of Louise and Gladys and their understanding of each other and the belief in which the opinion which they've held for a lifelong and lifelong time and how that kind of is largely disconnected or completely at odds with who they've sort of perceived themselves to be uh, as the contents of their character and the way in which they kind of live their life. And I wondered again, if that was something that you wanted to explore and show like just how wrong people can be about one another with their opinions, including family members and what sort of kind of uh, devastating results that can have, or ultimately just kind of lead to a, I guess a bit of a miserable existence for all parties involved. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think that we all are, you know, we're, we're in our family of origin, we play a role. And some of it just depends purely on birth order. You know, I'm mm. the oldest, so I'm going to take care of this. I'm the youngest, I'm going to try and avoid this. Some of it's to do with what sex you are. You know, I, I get to do this because I'm a boy. I have to do this because I'm a girl, whatever it is. So there's a lot of things that just come to us and then there's your own character. And if you don't like a small town life or you don't like that role that you've been assigned, maybe you want to bust out of it or maybe you get really interior with it and have a secret life. And, you know, there are lots of ways that you can put on a mask without being aware that you're putting on a mask. And I had sort of been asked about the line in the book that's about memory being a thief and, mm-hmm. and you know, replacing what you think you know is true with something that's that's not really you know that that doesn't seem to equate with your memory of it but I think that the the truth for me is anytime I've gone back to old diaries or to old letters I'm always shocked to find that the memory I have an event is not the same as the record of the event Mm. that I wrote down somehow the memory I've taken away is different from the facts that I wrote down And why is that? I think we reconstruct ourselves all the time. And I think that's what I mean by the masks that we wear. And that's why people are so shocked. You know, uh, the arts in the novel say to Gladys at one time, because she's been this, you know, beauty pageant queen and this baker and this gardener and everything perfect, the house perfect as a consequence of what happened in the past. And they're shocked when they say to her, but wait a minute, you're not doing that anymore. Why aren't you doing that anymore? And she makes us some remark about, well, Louise is not here anymore. And they're shocked when they say to her, that was only for her. You only did that for her. They, they don't know why she's done that. They just assume that was her character. That was who she was. And now suddenly she's living a different way. So I think we're very resistant to change. You know, from we, we like to have people in boxes that, makes us feel safe there's bob and that's what bob does so when bob no longer does that and we have to reassess you know that can make us uncomfortable we don't always like that so sometimes it's not just the events that happen sometimes it's just the effect that human nature likes things to be similar i think in a way and again what more fun for a novelist than to play with expectation Definitely similar, simple. That's that's what you know. One that can be categorized easily within a box, certainly within that sort of logic. You're right. You also mentioned something there, which I kind of wanted to it sort of dovetails nicely into the next. Uh, when the aunts were questioning sort of Gladys as to why she no longer does this, she says that's for Louise. I feel like that was the main. And there's a lot of different in a, in a relatively slender novel. There's a lot of different kind of uh, 
innately complex relationships that are depicted. But I feel like the main one definitely for me was um, between Louise and Gladys. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, I feel like that was the one in which you've put the most effort into crafting to show that ostensibly sometimes it does seem like it's incredibly dysfunctional, particularly early on. But the longer it goes on, the more you kind of fill in the blanks or bear allude to the past. I feel like there is a semblance of absolute devotion, particularly with this kind of um, notion of being outcast or shunned by and reviled by the, the sort of greater community for this, um, this contentious sort of uh, tragedy that happened. And I wondered if that was something that you did um, want to do there, Cassandra, is like capture this, uh, this relationship, which at face value might seem highly dysfunctional and could be written off as that. But as longer it goes on, there shows to be absolute devotion and, and true love there. I think that's a really, really astute reading of it. And I think that there's no doubt that I felt that those two women are absolutely bound together for better or worse um, in, yes, what is a, a push me, pull you of stop suffocating me. I absolutely need you mm. and I'll never let you go. How will you learn to stand on your own two feet? I, I definitely think that that's what's going on with those two characters. And I think that, you know, it's part of my job to set up a scenario that's dramatic and charged and seems to have the, these, I don't think I ever write from a, from a place of uh, um, pure archetype or caricature, but a very dramatic and stark positions that then slowly do become much more complicated in your mind. Is it, is it that Gladys is way overprotective? Or does she actually th see and know things about Louise that we don't know? Is Louise just tired, exhausted, and actually quite sensible with not immediately wanting to look for where her baby is because she'll wake her up? Or is she avoiding knowing something that she's been afraid of for a long time? So, uh, yes, those complexities, they start to twist together and twine together until you can't really separate them. But I think that at the heart of what you're saying, you know, is when you love something and someone, that's a complicated feeling that's never free from jealousies, possession, um, you know, devotion, joy, utter sorrow, misery, you know, mm. these things, they all go together. So yeah, I'm not surprised that you kind of read it that way the further it went. I, I, in fact, I'm highly delighted. Good, I'm glad because I like it's 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 um, not easy. It's a tall order that you that you that you gave yourself there because it must it would be obviously much easier for the archetypal kind of Norman Bates sort of uh, the shadowy figure that's right. in this sort of you know house on a hill kind of you know talking in a croaky sort of demonic voice. That's the, that's the easy way to go, but to actually kind of get into the nitty gritty of the human psyche and the condition inherently innately flawed as it is, 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 a, is a tall order. And you did, you did it, Cassandra, honestly. That's why I, like, I really, really enjoyed your novel and the dynamics that were kind of uh, lush within it. Um, you mentioned as well, and you kind of touched on it, I don't want to go too much into spoilers, but I do want to talk about Louise, yeah, because, again, this is a, you, you gave yourself a tall order here to try and, to try and, uh, and I'm going to say successfully, you successfully did it, but to depict someone within this sort of um, way with this with this happening with the disappearance of a baby, kind of uh, shirking all sort of sense or, or normality or one would assume the way that one would act. So essentially yeah. you as a writer put your hand on the stove, the hot ring there to defy that and subvert that and say, okay, well, 
uh, rather than just immediately calling for help. She's yes. going to go about her business. And, you know, this is the sort of thing. And uh, every, I'm, I'm sure I, I certainly felt it. And I'm sure that the majority of readers will say, no, what are you doing, person? Yeah. Like, it, And so I want you to kind of like, if you can, talk a little bit about, because yeah. I assume that's going against your sort of natural instincts and yes. to capture that as a character. And it's also going against what you think as a reader is the logic of the world that you're in. So... Mm. There's also a bit of resistance there, you know, to, you know, is this, is this the character making this decision? Has the author doing this? Am I as a reader, you know, resisting this character? I mean, she's pretty mopey. She's, she's sleep deprived. She, she's not terribly convincing. Do I like her? Is that the question I should be asking? Do, am I supposed to not like this person who's the main person in the novel? You know, I think I do twist you around all of that. And the only relief that I give you from that is to have people coming to the house, people coming to the house all the time and trying to get in and her keeping them out. And this growing sense of Gladys, you know, coming in the background, this Gladys who's clearly obsessed and clearly controlling and all the rest of it, but slowly, slowly telling us something's wrong with Louise, something's wrong with Louise, you know. So you are being forced into a corner, both by Louise's fear and by Gladys's insistence. And you've kind of, with Louise, got to fight your way out of that and then right at a moment, you know, decide when Gladys makes her decision with Louise at that climactic moment when they're together in the house alone and this truth in the story is going to be told or not, has Gladys done the right thing? Has Gladys not done the right thing? Where does it leave Louise? You know, Stephen's in a different place by the end of the book. Is Gladys correct about her her assumptions or not you know she don't you know I don't want to say too much I'm mm. that with a reader but I want to drive you into a point where you're making those decisions by the end of the novel you know how, how you feel about everything that's gone down but you're right that was a really that was a very tough thing to do and it was part of the reason that I set the novel only over one day it's literally only six or seven hours I think if I had set the novel over days we couldn't have stood it. You know, mm. there's too much going on. It just would have felt like it was too much. Whereas if I kept it as a pressure cooker and I kept you reminded, this is only one day, this is just happening right now. Every t every minute I'm reading is one minute that's going past. You could do it. You could, you know, you could stay in it. It was like almost, but you could do it. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned the, um, the likability or like wondering if Louise was likable because I never uh found uh her unlikable uh right. at all okay. well if that's a sort of a catch-all phrase for relatability or believability maybe you know all of that kind of stuff I think I think there's you know she's a she's difficult it's difficult to think she's not looking for a baby mm. <laughs> she's not looking for a baby you know yeah that's hard I just mean in that sense I mean I I don't find her an unlikable character no but um yeah, I don't know quite what, what way to put that then. It's tricky. So what was, it, what, what was the difficulty, like what did you need to get right with Louise in order for you to be satisfied as that you've captured okay, her? Yeah, that's a better way to get at it. It's her passivity that mm. I'm 
that I'm trying to talk about. And that's the word that I haven't used. I'm talking about likability, what have you. No, I mean her passivity. So Gladys is an easy character to uh, go along with, even though you might resist her, you know, whether however you feel about her, because she's constantly on the move. She's, she's like a shark. She can't get into the house herself, then she's going to send someone else. And if she can't get that person in, then she'll send her sister and she'll give her the box and she'll send it, you know, and she'll call Stephen and she'll pull these strings. And she's got the sec, you know, all this. I almost gave a spoiler away, but she's she's moving constantly. So even if you don't like her, she's terribly active and you want to know what she's doing next. Louise, on the other hand, is trying desperately not to act. She's trying to stop herself panicking she's trying to stop herself thinking about the past she's trying to stop herself going to sleep she's she's trying to stop and as a novelist that's a much harder character to pull off Mm. you know that she's she's resisting action all the time so part of what helped me was Gladys sending people to the house all the time that became really necessary (laughs) um because this is not the kind of book that's a book of just character, internal monologue, and that's that's your book, that that high literary character development. It has a lot of that, but it's a genre book. This is a domestic noir. I want to keep ratcheting up temperature. I want to keep making you feel uncomfortable. I want to keep propelling you through the pages. I can't do that if I'm just doing that in the head of one character, or I can't. Maybe someone else can. I don't know. But, but I, I couldn't. So that was, that was really my um, most difficult thing to do as a novelist was keep those two things working. Yeah. Was Great that question. the, oh, sorry, you said? Great question. Oh, really, bless you. Really question. Bless you, bless you. So you kind of touched on what I was going to say then, Cassandra. So is, that, is, that, is this the most difficult undertaking that you've had within your, because you've written two other novels. Yeah. Is this kind of like one of the biggest hurdles that you had to face to overcome I noticed that you in the acknowledgements you thanked uh Bruno writer's house so yes I wonder if you went to like a kind of like a really awesome writerly fortress of solitude there too um, I did that's exactly right I did I did do that and I actually finished a draft of the novel there which is absolutely fantastic because of course that you know the stepping outside of reality and phone calls and children Mm. and you know going somewhere where also someone's cooking for you uh, unbelievable and then you're in these incredible mountain settings for walks when you need inspiration and you're in a house with other writers who are all doing the same thing so you can come down to complain about your plot points or your characters all sit there and not talk about it whatsoever and have a glass of wine no that was that was absolutely fantastic that was magic um sorry I've forgotten your question what's the most difficult challenge that you think that you've had to overcome? Oh, that's any- right um Look, I think that was a really big one, Mm. no doubt. I think that All Fall Down, my second novel, had a cast of seven characters and they were all telling the story. And I wanted to make sure that every time one of them spoke, it wasn't to have to go over any information we'd already seen or Mm. scenes we'd already seen. So they were only allowed to move the information forward but somehow they had to get information that other characters had that they might not have yet known. So that did my head in. I I really had to think about, well, who is the best person to have this next part of the story and can somehow make sure the others know without 
even if they're not in the scene, they're going to have found out somehow. So I'm not going back over that bit of story again. Oh boy, that was hard. That was. That really sounds hard. like a logistical nightmare. So, what, what, did you use the um? Hard. Did you use that writing the writing app? Scrivener. Oh, Sorry, Scrivener? was that? Yes. I didn't. Oh. No, I sat with a, I sat with a pen and paper and a wall. And I looked at who knew what, when, and I kept shifting bits of information. I had to rewrite chapters and say, no, this chapter has to be such and such as because oh. they won't ever know what's going on unless otherwise, you know. So, no, it was a headache. It was really difficult. I don't, I, I don't know that I'd ever do that again. This novel and also my first novel, Seeing George, Seeing George was narrated by two different timelines, same person, all four down with seven different people only going forward chronologically. And this novel was three different people over one day. So I've never thought about this before, but you've just raised something for me formally. I clearly like multiple narrators and I clearly like playing with time. Yeah. You <laughs> can never know. be accused of being samey. I mean, it's all <laughs> no. craziest no. undertakings ever, especially the, the, the seven the seven narrators. That's wild. Even, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, that was crazy because I had to also get you into them too. Yeah. That was, that was tricky. That was really hard. All right. Well, wow. Okay. Intense. So, Look, a question I always like to end with, Cassandra, and I know it's a bit tried or it's a bit cliche, but I always like, because I never get the same answer twice and they're always kind of like impactful and inspiring is what advice would you give to writers out there at any stage of their career or a particular stage if you think that there's some kind of like more specific advice that would be of more benefit? Okay, I've got three things. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm sorry. So the first one I'm sure you've heard before, it can't possibly be unique, which is to, is to write. I mean, it's crazy how how many times you will avoid writing if you mm. possibly can. You will clean the house and walk the dog and pay the bills and do whatever else because it's hard. If you're writing from a place of, you know, um, honesty in a sense, however, it doesn't matter if you're making up a world with castles and dragons, you're still writing from a place that's going to bring you sorrow or shame or you know, reach deep joy, it's hard. That's hard work and you avoid it. And there's no way to be a writer except to write, write, write. The second thing I would say is writing is really rewriting. And that was the hardest thing for me because I love a blank page. That to me is the wild west. I I, I don't know where I'm going. I'm a pantser, um, not a plotter. I write by the, you know, I just sit down and away I go and I have so much fun. I really like it. So rewriting for me is really difficult. Mm. And I can look at a page and I can look at a paragraph and I know that it's wrong. I'll know that it's wrong rhythmically. I'll know that it's, I'm not leaning into the character for some reason or into that moment for some reason, but I'm damned if I know why. <laughs> so I've got to sit there and I've got to figure it out and that's hard. So that's the number two thing. You've got to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and you won't always know what makes something better. Sometimes reading out loud will help you. Sometimes giving it to someone else will help you. And sometimes those two things will not help you. But the other thing I would say to writers is you've got to put yourself out there. You have to enter competitions and be rejected, not win them. You have to go to 
workshops and realize that you're not the best one in the room, you have to do this, take part in interviews in the, in the community, learn who's saying what and who's interested in it. Look at the podcasts that are separate for writers versus ones that are for readers. Know who's on at the festivals, go and listen to them, go and go and take part of them if you possibly can but if you can't take part in them go and listen to the to the people who are writing i just think that there's a there's a great wealth of information both from other writers and from readers who are super keen and you've got to be part of that community so write rewrite and be part of the community <laughs> love to the last piece especially well it's very it's very very good very very true um Cassandra, absolute joy talking to you today. I really, Likewise. really enjoyed Like Mother, like a lot. Uh, you are a good writer and it was an absolute joy talking to you and reading your work. Likewise. Thank you so much, Sam. Great questions. Really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. So, everyone, that was Cassandra Austin talking to me about her third novel, uh, Like Mother. Uh, big thanks to Cassandra for talking to me and for that being a successful endeavour that we've uh, successfully accomplished of speaking to each other in two different time zones, two different countries. Bravo, huzzah for us. Um, really good novel, can't recommend it enough. I will put the link, as always, to Penguin Random House. Those are the good folks that published this novel uh, into the bio slash description of this particular episode available there for you on SoundCloud and Spotify. So get stuck in. Um, yep, big thanks again to Cassandra for talking to me. Uh, big thank you to you as well, dear listener, respective of where you're listening from. Uh, I'm really, really enjoying seeing the storied sort of disparate demographics of people that are listening to the episodes. Uh, a lot of countries as well that I'm really kind of pleasantly surprised about considering I don't know how it's uh, getting out there except, except for my little um, Instagram account uh, kind of promoting it. So I'm really, really happy to see these kind of results. Uh, you know, very supportive and much appreciated. Uh, can't stress enough. Uh, I know I say it, broken record, but so be it. It's my program. I'm allowed to do it. There's going to be a lot more episodes that are coming up in the coming weeks. Whole bunch of people, very disparate, very interesting stories. Uh, all so please if you haven't already follow the program on whichever medium slash app slash program device you are listening to my voice on and stay tuned because i've got a hell of a lot more episodes coming up that i really want you to listen to thank you again you'll have a lovely day now